podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Wherever you are quarantining, we're having conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Uh, Chris Demp here, so thankful to have you join us. And apologies, we realize this is going out a day late. And I have to say, uh, for the first time in like probably years, I, I don't know, I think we're pretty timely with this. So I guess in the world of COVID, all things are up for change. Uh, that said, I am. I, this was one of my favorite episodes ever, hands down. If you wanted to take quotes out of this episode and give them to entrepreneurs or give them to a business school, it could be its own lesson. Uh, that's how powerful I think this is. And on the episode this week, we have as a guest somebody who is a multi-billionaire. Yeah, uh, don't mind the pop filter. That's a B. Okay. And it's not that that is all that matters, but like, that's still kind of crazy. I mean, I, I have this guy's phone number, you know, um, and not only that, he's one of the coolest, most genuine, most intelligent, well-spoken, fun people I've had the chance to interview. Who is this person? It is Jim McKelvey. Now, Jim is the former co-founder of Square. He's a serial entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, and artist. He co-founded Square with none other than Jack Dorsey, who you might know. You know, the guy had something to do with Twitter. And he was the chairman of the board on Square until 2010. He still serves on the board of directors. In 2016, he founded Invisibly. And in 2017, he was appointed as an independent director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Jim is on the show. We're talking about his brand new book called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Right away in this interview, we dive into why the hell did Jim write a book? Like, why put yourself through that when you have billions of dollars? But that's why I love this interview. He is genuinely out there sharing his knowledge. What does he have to gain? He doesn't need notoriety. He doesn't need money or fame. I was so thankful to have him on. Please let us know what you think. Did you enjoy it? If so, we are at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And even more so, this is one, share it. You know, put it on Insta, put it on Twitter, put it on Facebook. Get it out there in the world for all of your friends and colleagues who want to start businesses, who want to be entrepreneurs. There are lessons in here that everyone can take away. If you enjoyed these lessons on entrepreneurship and any of the interviews we put out, we would really appreciate it. Head on over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. For as little as $2 a month, you can support us, support this growing podcast, get ad-free episodes. And by the way, if you listen to the end of this interview, there are two people who asked Jim questions. Um, they are our Patreon supporters. Anyone there, anyone in that community can ask any of our guests questions. It's literally $2 a month. So that's patreon.com slash smart people podcast. 
Let's get into one of my favorite conversations of all time with the co-founder of Square and brilliant entrepreneur Jim McKelvey as we talk about his new book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Enjoy. I got to tell you, I always, there's something in my head that always kind of trips up when I think about talking to somebody as rich as you. I I don't know what it is, but money has this weird way of shaping my opinion. I was richer two weeks ago. I mean, hopefully (laughs) I've gotten a lot less intimidating in the last couple of weeks. That's pretty funny. Last couple of weeks specifically because of the hit to the net worth, I'd imagine. So, So truth be told, I gave myself a haircut in the backyard last week. Yeah. Um, which is okay. A lot of people are doing that. The point is I own the Clippers. Like I own, I had all the stuff ready to go to give myself a wow. haircut. Not cause wow. I'm so prepped. It's that, you know, for years I was watching every penny. So really? yeah, I used to give myself haircuts and I mean, my hair is nothing to speak of anyway, uh, <laughs> which is why I love podcasting. Um, <laughs> but I had, I had the tools if not the skills, <laughs> but like, yeah. So don't be intimidated at all. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm embarrassed by how much money I have right now. Like it's, well, and I want to talk really about awkward. that. I, yeah. I really do. I want to talk about okay. money and we'll get into that, but I'll tell you one of the things I'm most interested in, we're 350 something episodes in and almost everyone on the show is an author. Why write a book when you don't really have any need to now I'm sure there's a want and that's what I'm asking but it's not a need for money. It's not a need for recognition. It's not a need for fame. It's not a need for growing a business. So why write a book? Why write a fourth book? Because I've written three books before this, two textbooks on computer science and one on glass blowing. So I did not want to write a book. I was searching for an answer to a personal question, which was how Amazon didn't kill Square. Because Amazon did what they always do. They copied the product, undercut our price. And when they do that to a startup, the startup dies. 100% of the time, Amazon does that, the startup dies or becomes part of Amazon. And when Square was four years old, Amazon did that to us. And we all thought we were going to die. And then miraculously, a year later, we were fine. As a matter of fact, Amazon was so cool in the way they quit attacking Square, they mailed all their customers a Square reader and said, we're out, use Square. What? Yeah, you just captured it. That what? <laughs> That that was echoing in my head for a year. Like, what? You know, I mean, I, look, I was happy, but I was also really confused. So I went on this sort of weird quest to first find any other company that survived Amazon, which is why I know there are none, and then to find any other companies in any industry that had had a similar experience. And and I stumbled across this thing, and and what happened to Square was rare but it was not unique. And when I saw this pattern again and again, I was like, oh, holy shit. Like I, something, like why didn't anyone tell me this? Like that was what I felt. I was like, you know, I'm 50, I guess I was 52 years old when I started working on this. Like, you know, I was like, I've gone half a century without knowing this phenomenon. Gotten my ass kicked 15 different ways. And, and I was like, and here it is. And so I didn't want to write a book. Um, as, as you say, I didn't need the money. Um, I didn't right. I, like it, And writing a book is torture. So I, um, what I did was I took all my research um, 
and and then I, I tried to disqualify myself. So so here's the thing about doing research. Um, you can prove whatever the hell you want. Like if you especially do historical research, so most of my stuff is historical. If you do if you mine history for those cases that happen to support your crazy view, uh, you will find lots of supporting evidence. You write your book and everyone goes, oh, look at this. I didn't want to do that. So I took all my I took all my uh, historical research. And then I found a guy who had lived through it. And it was Herb Kelleher, the founder of Southwest Airlines. And Herb is a legend. He was in his 80s. And I, I called him up and uh, I said, Mr. Kelleher, would you meet with me and talk about you know what Southwest went through and what Square went through? And so I went down and I, I basically laid all the, my research at the, at the foot of this giant. I mean, Herb Kelleher was a total badass. And, um, yeah. and I, said, I said, Herb, is it right? I was like, I think it's right. But like, you lived through it. Is this what happened to you? Is this how it felt? And Herb was like, this is it. He's like, I love this. You've got to write a book. And I was so jazzed that like this guy that I worshipped was saying yes to my research that I was like, oh, I'm going to go write the best book in the world. But but I had I, I had this sort of hero worship with Herb. And I, I just kept thinking, I don't want to write a book. Like I want to <laughs> write a graphic novel. So the book – the first five drafts of the book were all graphic novels. And Herb was this larger than life character. So was A.P. Giannini. Like, you know, I asked Jack if I, you know, do you have, like, Jack, do you mind if I make you as, as a cartoon? And he was like, yeah, sounds cool. Like, so the whole thing was supposed to be a graphic novel. And I called up Herb. Uh, this is like after about a year's worth of work. And I said, oh, I got this great idea. We're doing it as a graphic novel. And Herb hated the idea. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was like, there's no way Herb Keller is like, yeah, let's do a comic. Well, he, he had a great sense of humor. Like he was a playful, fun guy. And but huh. he also, he was in his eighties and he, uh, when he was a kid, comic books were not serious. They were jokes. And this whole idea of the graphic novel being something that you could take seriously was so foreign to him that he said, no, I don't want to be in it. And so I was like, oh crap. So I, I rewrote the thing and I cut half half of the stuff out. So it was half graphic novel, then half text. And then um, that's what I submitted to the publisher. The publisher looked at it and said, Jim, you realize you're going to lose half your audience because everyone's using e-readers and audiobooks and your graphic novel format that switches sporadically back and forth is not going to work. And mm -hmm. so I rewrote the whole thing as a book, but it reads like a comic book. Like uh, there's the destruction. No, let me of ask you. City. You know. <laughs> what, what was harder, writing the book or creating Square? Oh, God. <laughs> so it was harder creating Square, but the book required more discipline because like creating Square, and I, and I talk about this a lot in the book, like once you make a decision to do something significant, motivation is not a problem because with Square, we pick this crazy thing which was we were going to give credit card processing to everybody, like everybody. Your grandma can take a credit card, like, you know, not, yeah. not that she needs to, but hey, you know, you never know what's going on in the home, right? No, they, you know, like you just don't know what's Especially going on. Especially now, man, people need credit cards for everything. You know? Oh, yeah. There, I, there's, a, there's a whole Viagra-fueled subculture in Florida right now that I'm sure is, uh, <laughs> is something that you and I can only possibly imagine. Um, I've heard some stories, but uh, um, yeah, the, the, but the point is here. 
we wanted to do this crazy thing. And I say crazy because at the time, none of the banks, none of the credit card companies would allow this to happen. And so we started off doing this thing that had been considered you know, undoable. And so once we got down that path, in the first week, we discovered 17 rules, laws, and regulations that we were violating with each transaction. Okay. So think about that mm -hmm. for a minute. Like we, we, we were like outlaws from the beginning. So mm -hmm. at, at that point, we were basically in survival mode. Like, can we survive? Can we get compliant with these laws or get the laws changed and keep our team together? Like, like it was just survival. So Square was a hell of a lot of work and a hell of a lot of stress, but it was the stress that comes from not wanting to die. Okay. Yep. yep. Now the book, I didn't have to write the book. I felt I should write exactly. the book. I was like, oh, uh, so, but it was a totally different thing. It's like every day I woke up, my family was fine. Everyone was healthy. You know, I had, you know, enough money to screw up several generations of McKelvey's from here on out. You know, exactly. Like, I didn't have to write the book. So, so the book was a motivational thing. Like I just had to get up every day and go, oh God, you know, I got to spend four hours, you know, like trying to write a paragraph because I'm a slow, slow writer. But for, for an entrepreneur, I imagine that has to be harder because, and look, I'm making some, you know, generalizations here, but I would imagine this taking risks and, you know, fighting for your life mentality is probably something that you enjoy. Whereas that type of personality does not fit well with the, Hey, I wake up in the morning and I have to force myself to do something slow and methodical multiple times for an end result that is in, at least in my world, unnecessary, although I want to do it. Yeah. That seems like a lot more pain than waking up and trying to make payroll. It, it, in fact, for me, it was because yeah. like it, the problem for me is the, is the self-discipline that, that's necessary. Entrepreneurship for me requires very little self-discipline because I just <laughs> pick problems that I care deeply about. And then I get myself usually into trouble. And then it was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Like I need to deal with this shit, you know? So there's a, there's a, there's a massive mess that I have to confront and I'm kind of used to that. So you don't wake up, you know, worried about survival and motivation, right? Right. <laughs> the motivation is sort of given and, and I have, I, I have terrible motivation problems. So I tend to put myself in more perilous situations to make up for the motivation problems, which is, again, as you say, the opposite of what happened with the book. I had to summon motivation. That's why that idea came to me about, you know, I imagine this doesn't fit well with you because although I'm nowhere close in any arena, but I helped found a nonprofit with a former executive from SpaceX. And one of the things that always struck me, and I want to ask you is when he ran into a problem, it was just a, a day in the life. And so you ran into these 17 problems up front and I have two questions. I'll ask the other one later, but the first one is, what is it about you that when you see all of these problems and we're not talking like, oh, this is a technology issue. We're talking like, oh, this is a law issue. You know, why do you think, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and try this out as opposed to, and I hate to admit this, but I love ideas. I love entrepreneurship. I love business, but I tend to revert, my first instinct is, well, I guess we can't overcome that challenge. Let me just find an easier way out. Is that something that can be taught? Yeah. What do you think about that? So I, I don't know. So, I mean, Chris, you are literally the person mm -hmm. I wrote the book for, if that is how you feel, because I dedicated this book and wrote this book for 
a certain person who I know who is brilliant and super capable, but whenever she finds herself in a situation where she is not experienced, where she doesn't have any expertise, she says, oh, I'm, I'm not qualified. So she, mm. she quits. And look, that's really intelligent behavior right. in most situations. So if I want to go out today and fly a plane, I just, you know, I'm bored. I'm bored out of my mind, right? So I go, hey, look, I'm going to go go fly a plane, right? That would be stupid, okay? Because right now, uh, I am not a current pilot. I, I, I used to have a pilot's license and it's lapsed and I have to go get retrained and, you know, all this. Like, it would be stupid if I want to go fly a plane, I got to go do a bunch of training, a bunch of certification, got to take a medical. I got to do all sorts of stuff. You can be qualified to fly a plane these days or unqualified, but go back to the Wright brothers. They were not qualified to fly the first plane. Nobody could be qualified to fly that first plane, and yet uh-huh. it was still done. So I wanted to write a book, and this and look, and this is the reason I wrote the book. I mean, like the whole thing is, I saw all these talented people, like yourself, like you know this person, and I've met hundreds of them, who have this potential to do something besides what they are qualified to do. So let's let's look at qualifications a different way, and say. Well, what is something that everybody is unqualified to do? And that is something new. Okay. If it is new, if it has not been done, then there is no expertise. There is no person who can certify you, Chris, to be, you know, the guy who gets it done. It's still possible to do. It's just, it will always be done the first time by somebody who is Mm. unqualified. And I don't want everybody, I don't want all of our talents sitting on the sidelines. So right now I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with, you know, social missions and nonprofits and, and, you know, these, these things that I care about. And I'm like, look, I need an army. Like I need a million more people to understand that their whole lives, they have been taught, I think very rightly taught to not do things they don't know how to do. Don't try stuff you don't know how to do. You know, find an expert, mm-hmm. study with an expert, you know, get certified, get, you know, get a piece of paper, you know. And in most cases, that's correct. But if you're trying to fix a new problem, you're never going to be qualified. And, and, and we are so used to stopping when we have no qualifications. We don't even ask this, the, the question, which is, hey, could anybody be qualified for this? Because Jack and I weren't qualified to start Square. I mean, he was a massage therapist. I'm a glass blower. And, whoa, you know, whoa, what the hell Wait did you say? Payments. Wait, yeah. what? <laughs> you just threw me for a loop. I mean, I knew about yeah. your glass blowing. I did not know. I'm a glass and blower. Admittedly, I don't know much about Jack other than, you know, he's, he's <laughs> rich and CEO, all that stuff. He was a massage therapist. Yeah, it's his only professional qualification. Like he didn't, he didn't, he didn't finish college. I, I, I have an undergraduate. I have two undergraduate degrees, but Jack, Jack wow. quit. <laughs> like he didn't finish college. So yeah, his, his only professional credential is he is a certified massage therapist. Although I think, I think his credential has also lapsed. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think he's, he's grown out of yeah. that, which actually brings me to, and, and I want to talk more about this idea of why you wrote the book and because that does speak to me and, and I know many people listening, but as you mentioned, Jack, and for those that are living under a rock, Jack Dorsey, you know, yeah. co-founded. Square with you, co-founded Twitter, kind of a big deal. Um, I read that he actually worked for you when he was 15. And even at that point, you noticed he was uh, different. Uh, Yeah, I called him Jack the Genius. I I hired the kid when he was 15. Um, His mother used to sell us uh, chocolate-covered espresso beans, which 
before the days of Ritalin was how we all stayed awake. Jack came into the office one day um, and we put him to work immediately. He pulled an all-nighter with us the first day, uh, sent him home at 5 a.m., got, got him in a lot of trouble with his folks. Yeah, Jack was talented even as a 15-year-old. And by the time he was 16, uh, I essentially promoted him to be a manager and he was managing a team of 30-year-olds uh, as a Wow. And, and, you know, and coming to work on his bike, like, which was really funny. Um, that, I just don't see how that works in a company. Like, I don't, I can't imagine the 30 year olds being okay with that. Well, so it was a funny interview. Um, cause I interviewed them all. Uh, I had a, you know, it was a team of three people and I put them all in a room and I said, you know, okay, I'm about to introduce you to your boss and I want you to understand that your boss, uh, is, uh, he, he he's sort of an introvert, so he's not going to say much, uh, but you just do whatever he says and we're going to be fine. And uh, one of the guys raised his hand and he said, uh, he says, I've got a question. Uh, what's my job title going to be? And I thought about it for a second. I said, uh, assistant to the summer intern. Oh, no. And then I, I yelled in the back and Jack came in. And, you know, he's he's not a big guy. Right. But, like, imagine we was 15, right? Uh, I, <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, but. That same guy who asked about his job title came to me about a month later. He says, oh, I see why this guy's in charge. Wow. Let's pull on that thread for a minute. Not at all my intention to talk about him for much time because you are a genius in your own right. But what is it about him that you could notice at 15? Because I think here's here's really the selfish reasoning. Uh, I like to play sports, right? And I was always pretty good, but I was never great. Like it wasn't, oh, Chris might be a pro one day. Um, and I think the same thing is true of pro athletes, as is many very successful adults in business, which is you can spot something different early, but it also makes it more depressing for those of us who weren't that special. So what is it or was it about Jack that you noticed? And then do you think that's a requirement to be uber successful later in life? I, I, I don't know if it's a requirement, but the thing that I noticed in Jack was that he finished jobs and he did them very well. Okay, so there's somebody who, uh, so I'll pick on my son, you know, mm -hmm. like I tell him to clear the table and he grudgingly takes his plate over to the sink, uh, you know, leaving a trail of rice as he goes, you know, and okay, did he clear the table? Yeah, kind of, um, uh, but he didn't do a good job. Okay, he didn't do an objectively good. So what do I, what do I mean when I say clear the table? Well, maybe, maybe wipe the table down too, you know, maybe put your dishes and wash them like maybe like you can do a job to the point where you can argue that it's done or you can do a job to the point where it is done and exceptional mm. and that second category of behavior leads to more and more opportunity so what happened in jack's case was you know he was he was working a scanner you know like put pieces of paper in the scanner push start like that was his first job right. and then from that point when i go back he not only scanned all the paper but they were in deep piles it was organized i was like oh he did like a better job than i was expecting because i'm used to people being kind of sloppy sure. you know oh his, his, his piles of paper are neat so then my my brain goes okay let's give him a little more um so i gave him a little more and that job he'd do better than expected and and look this is not genius level stuff sure okay this is just competence plus okay do the job a little bit better than expected and um you know and jack was also very quiet which you might guess i am not <laughs> right so i became this big cheerleader for our 
15 year old intern and I kept, I kept throwing in more and more stuff and he kept getting the jobs done well. So I was like, one day, Hey man, here's a big job. And he, he, he turned to me and says, well, I don't think I can do this by myself. And I said, oh, don't worry. We're going to hire people. They're going to work for you. And he was like, well, I've never managed anybody. He was like, oh, it's not hard. You know, just tell them what to do. And if they give you any crap, tell them, you know, tell them to see me. See me. I mean, that was, that was my management training. Um, look, I mean, I'm not saying that, it, and, and I called him Jack the Genius. He was very competent and he always did a little bit better than the expectation that I had. Gotcha. If you continue to do that, opportunities will show up. And now a quick word for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Ritual. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we're still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. Luckily, it comes easy. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a second, John. You're not a woman. What would you know? Well, don't listen to me. Listen to my wife, Amanda. She's been taking them for a couple weeks now. Go ahead. Take it away. Thanks, John. Now, I'm not one to normally take vitamins, but these make me feel like I'm doing something good for my body. They're super easy to take each day and taste like you're eating a mint leaf. No other weird vitamin taste. I also like that you can take them with or without food, which is great for me, especially during this pandemic, because my breakfast time has gotten all messed up. So I can just take them quick and easy in the morning and then worry about breakfast a little bit later. Amanda loves Ritual, and you will too. Ritual Essential for Women is the multivitamin reimagined. From D3 to Omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. Ritual is traceable and transparent. For all you obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. So listen up. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Just head over to ritual.com smart to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com smart. And now back to the episode. You know, that's a really phenomenal lesson. And I mean that especially because here's the thing, right? At 15, I don't know. We all know ourselves at 15. I was the, I'll leave trails of rice the whole way to the table. Um, but I yeah. have matured out of that. And I think more into what you're talking about. Like if you're going to do something, do it well, give it what you got. And sometimes it becomes obsessive. And I also think it's situational. Like you said, find what your motivators are. Like you sound to be motivated by the situation being perilous to some extent. Uh, myself included. I always said the hardest I worked was for this nonprofit, making the least amount yeah. of money I've ever made. And it was because when you have to worry how you're going to pay people in 12 hours, that's a hell of a motivator. You know what I mean? But it will kind of force a lot of that execution. 
And, and this is where I'm going with this. Do you believe that proper and, and competent execution is most important in somebody who is trying to build a business? Or is it the ability to ideate and see the future and be creative? So I think both skills are valuable and I wouldn't rank one over the other, uh, except to say that if you're good at doing and you're uh, exceptionally competent at doing things, that doesn't necessarily guarantee success in business because a lot of times, unless, at least in a startup world, which is what I'm most familiar with, um, sort of fast mediocrity beats siloed competence. Okay, so if you're really good at, uh, let's say, blowing glass, let's say you're a fantastic artist, well, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have a successful studio mm. because studio means building a furnace and paying the gas bill and hiring assistants and shipping glass and melting glass and packing glass and selling glass. And you got to have online marketing, you know, so just the fact that you're, you know, a badass with a blowpipe doesn't guarantee success um, in a business because businesses have a bunch of different facets. One of the things that was weird about Square was, you know, Jack was a really good programmer. Tristan was an excellent programmer. And then I was the weakest programmer of the three. And so I wasn't going to do much programming. I was going to do everything else. Well, what did that mean? Well, that meant I was customer service. I was accounting. I was hardware design. You know, I was the guy that vacuumed the office. Like I was doing all this other stuff, not particularly well, but really fast. Mm. So, you know, excellence. And, and again, I'm, I'm talking just for the startup world here. Sure. Like, in a startup situation, you have so many things hitting you simultaneously that speed and mediocrity has always been sort of my recipe. <laughs> like there are a couple of things I can do well, but I don't I don't generally get to do those things until the business gets more established. And then what I try to do is I try to go and do the things that I'm actually good at and enjoy doing and you know, hire people to do accounting. Like I can do accounting, but I am not the guy you want doing <laughs> accounting. You know, I, I want to get into a little bit. There's two kind of primary things I want to talk about is your book, but is the beginning of Square. I'm I'm really fascinated by it. Could you tell us how the the idea phase turned into execution and also how you and Jack came together on this? I'm I'm really curious on that aspect. The two of you coming together and then the start of this business. So Jack and I are both from St. Louis. He came back for Christmas in 2008, and I learned that he had just been kicked out of Twitter, which was a company he co-founded. So he had nothing to do, basically. He had just been booted out of his own company. He, he was somebody I cared about, and I was pissed. And I was like, well, let's go get even with those guys. Like, I've got nothing to do. I can... You know, I, I can I can spare a month and move out to California and just make life miserable for uh, you know, the guys that kicked you out. And <laughs> you know, to his credit, Jack was like, Well, why don't we do something positive with all that energy and start our own company? And I was like, Cool, what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. So <laughs> neither one of us had an idea, but we knew we wanted to do something with mobile tech. So we hired an iPhone programmer out of Apple. And um, the guy was going to start in two weeks. So we figured, well, we got two weeks to come up with an idea. So we, you know, spitballed a bunch of ideas, uh, came up with this journaling app that was, it was actually Jack's idea. And we weren't too psyched about it, but it was sort of like something to get going. So we were going to do that. And then I went home to St. Louis to pack up. And in my studio, I was there trying to sell a piece of glass to a lady who only had an American Express card. And I lost this big sale because I couldn't process Amex. And I was pissed. 
And it was actually a phone order and I was talking to her over my iPhone. And and I looked at my iPhone and I was like, this device should take credit cards. Like I should be able to, I should be able to solve that problem with everything that's, that I'm holding in my hand. So I called up Jack, like on the same iPhone. And I said, hey, I know what we should do. We should build a way for me to get paid. I, and, and, and that was sort of interesting because it wasn't like we should build this big payment system for so all small merchants could use you know, credit cards. It was like, no, 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 I got a problem. It's personal to me. And I know some of my friends have the same problem. So this is what I think we should build. And we didn't know at the time that there would be millions of, millions of users. Uh, but that was the start of Square. And Jack liked the idea. And so we became a payments company. Now, again, take me back then to, okay, that makes sense. Every, I, what do I want to say? Every creative entrepreneur, and, and by entrepreneur, I just mean somebody aspiring even to become an entrepreneur, has almost so, gotten so, to that so, point. So, hey, Chris, can I, can I ask you to use the word entrepreneur differently? Sure. Okay. And I spend a lot of time in the book doing this, but the word entrepreneur used to have a different meaning than it has today. Okay. The historical use of that word is somebody who does something crazy and different as opposed to somebody who starts a business. Mm. Okay. So my friend Howard, who started a big coffee company, uh, is not an entrepreneur by that definition because he did, he started a coffee company. Now he's a very successful business person. Like he's a multimillionaire and you know, a lot of people drink Howard's coffee, but coffee has been done. Howard didn't invent the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Like he, he can go to a conference where people know how to make coffee and brew coffee and roast coffee and, and all the swizzle sticks and, you know, uh, uh, all the, all the tech is there. If, if Howard has a problem, he can go and find somebody else that solved it. And, and that makes for good business. He's made a lot of money. An entrepreneur, I've got this other friend who's like trying to launch satellites from old airplanes. Like he takes these old fighter jets, strips all the radar out of them, sends them up to 70,000 feet, puts it in a power dive to like Mach 2, and then he points it back up and fires a little missile off one of the wings that has a satellite in it. Like that guy's an entrepreneur because if he has a problem with one of his old fighter jets, he is completely on his own. Yeah. So so when you say, if, you, if you're talking about somebody who's starting a business, which is a ton of work and it, it, it looks a lot like entrepreneurship in the classic sense, except that entrepreneurs have one huge disadvantage and that is there is nothing for them to copy right well and, so and i'm glad go ahead and ask that. Question again. no no let me, I like, let me just like stick that i mean it's it's it, that by the way that's why if you if you do research on the word joseph schumpeter the the economist who gave us that word that's why he gave us the word because he needed a way to differentiate a certain type of business which was let's call it business as usual you know, starting new businesses is done every day. Okay. You start a new restaurant. Most cases, you're not an entrepreneur. Okay. Um, you start a new restaurant to uh, feed people food that like everybody else is feeding. You have a system to support you. Right. Um, Schumpeter needed a way to differentiate those people who were doing something completely different. Well, and, and that's, I think, I'm glad you, you broke that differentiation out because I think it is critically important. And I am actually, I think, speaking to this idea of entrepreneurs, right? I don't, okay, I, cool. I think there's a little bit of a difficulty because I think 
like, where does the delineation become? It's never been done before, but something similar has been done. You know what I mean? Well, and I, and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to be religious about yeah. this. It's not like you're with us or you're with or you're yeah, against yeah. us. No, no, it's not that crap. It's just like, I, the way I, the way I deal with it is, can you copy the solution? Okay. So I'll give you an example. You have a problem, whatever the problem is. That problem is going to fit into one of three categories. Um, it's either an unsolvable problem, which is to say there is no way, given current technology, that that problem can be solved. It's impossible to solve right now. We have to wait for tech to catch up or something else. Then it is an unsolved but solvable problem, i.e., we can do it. We just don't know how yet. Uh, or it's a solved problem i.e. somebody else has figured it out and we can copy what they did. Okay. If you have a solved problem, you are almost always smarter to copy the solution mm -hmm. because that's not a guarantee, but it's a high percentage shot. If you go into the realm of solvable problems, but unsolved problems, well, first of all, you don't really know where you are. Because if it's an unsolved problem, do you know, well, is it solvable or is it not solvable? You right. don't know until you try. And maybe it's not solvable by you, but maybe somebody else could figure out how to do it. Or maybe it's just damn impossible and nobody on the planet has the ability to do it. You just don't know where you are. So now all of a sudden you're in this murky world where the rules are different. And that's the world that I wanted to explore in the book. Because that's the world where I've spent, unfortunately, like a good part of my career. Yeah, is and just and I know why you say yeah. unfortunately. I mean, literally, my, my listeners know this. We started the podcast and continue to do the podcast because I'm like, I'm curious and I want help. And this is the only way I can get people. So oftentimes I'm yeah. relating it to my world. And the, the nonprofit that we started and is still running was never been done before. Is is bizarre. Like I still. And so I think I am equating it to that. And this is why I go back to it. When you are this true entrepreneur, the problems you face the second you try to take your idea and move it to action are monumental. And I just, yeah. I know without our CEO, I never would have moved forward. And he moved forward with such ease in the same way that I imagine you injected. How do you do that? Like, what do you say to those people who do have the crazy ideas, who are, who are trying to change the world, hopefully for the positive, and most are, and, and run into... The second they go to put it into action, these roadblocks that are bigger than we could ever imagine. Okay, so a couple of things help. Uh, first of all, having some technical background helps because technical people are used to things that work or don't work. Okay, engineers are used to things like it's functioning. You don't need an engineer. Call the marketing department. It's not functioning. Call the engineer. Hmm. So I studied engineering, and that that helps a little bit as far as as far as training. But 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 more to the point. You should, first of all, understand that the process of invention and creation and problem solving in, in the entrepreneurial sense, where you don't get to copy the solution, is a messy, iterative, error-prone process. And if you are the sort of person who is intimidated by that, which I think to some extent we all are, then the question is, how, how do you function when you are uncomfortable? And a lot of people freeze. Okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of people freeze if they feel unqualified. A lot of people freeze if they feel uncomfortable. A lot of people freeze if all of their friends are saying, well, you're an idiot. There's 17 laws. There's a reason this hasn't been done. Why don't you guys quit? Okay. And if you're that sort of person, then, and you don't understand 
that there is actually a toolkit that works even with unsolved problems, then you're likely to quit. And so, I mean, and, and look, this is this is the whole reason to write the book. Your, your first question of the interview was perfect, which was just like, like, why the hell do you put myself <laughs> through all this stuff? And the answer is, I, I don't need to know this because I know it, but I want everybody else to know. Right. Okay. I don't want our talent sitting on the sidelines. Like that's the whole thing. And I don't care if you read my book. Like I've given enough, you know, interviews. Like you can piece the whole damn thing together. <laughs> and, and, and if and literally, if you go to jimmykelvin.com, I will give you the comic book version of the thing for free. Hmm. Like I don't need a penny of your money. Like I don't need you to even read the thing. I don't care. But 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 if you're one of these people who has the potential to do something, then let me at least show you what it looks like. And and the most heartbreaking interview that I've done for this book. I was talking to a guy, super successful dude, okay? And I can't use his name because I haven't gotten permission to do this. Sure. But I will just tell you that that a, a a single painting in his house was worth more than my entire house. Wow. Okay. Like, it was, he's, that, he's, this guy's a total badass. In business, you'd go, oh, yeah, that guy. That guy okay? Mm. I was sitting in his house. We were talking about the book. And he said, I wish I'd had this when I was 20. Wow. He said, and I, I said, please, you know, tell me about it. And he, and he said, well, the last company I started, we were halfway through an innovation stack and I was so demoralized, I quit. He said, if I had had this book and I had understood how messy and uncertain the process is, I probably would have kept going. That company might be, you know, in business today as opposed to dead because he wow. really cared about what he was doing. He just, he didn't understand the process. And look, I'm saying I didn't understand the process when I, when I was doing Square. Like I didn't. Like you could do this without knowing what the hell's happening, but if you kind of know how invention and innovation looks, and it's way different than the way you're taught, and it's also this is the other terrible thing, Chris. It's it's also not a hero story, okay? So it's we tend to get these hero stories of oh you're such a badass, you're so brilliant or intelligent or motivated or something. You know we tend to tend tell hero stories when somebody becomes successful because we sort of on on one level like to relieve ourselves of this responsibility that we too could be heroes. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So and and, it, and it's comforting to think that oh, well, you know, you're 7 feet tall, uh that's why you're an NBA star. And then you look at somebody who's, you know, 62 and you know, an NBA star and you go, "Oh shit, I'm 62." <laughs> right. You mean, you know, like so it's a it, it, the hero story. I hear the hero story again and again and again. There's this, there's this beatification of 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 success. And and hey, it's easy to play the hero once you're successful. People are, you know, they're kissing your rings and kissing other parts, and like they're just they're there. There is this uh, sycophantic fetish with success that that gives us heroes. And then we yep. feel separated, and I don't want to do that. I basically talk uh, uh, the opposite, which is like, okay, here are all my failings, and there are multiple ones, like all these terrible problems. Like here's like I, I was having panic attacks in the middle of the square. I literally mm -hmm. pulled off the road with my fiance at one point, and I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, wow. I was like, I was like, I'm just I'm gonna die here in the middle of the 101. Like <laughs> just get me over the road so I don't kill another family, um, and and. You know, of course, my long-suffering fiance, now wife, was, you know, sort of uh, here. Take a baby aspirin and shut up. But um, <laughs> that's hilarious, yeah. by the way. We all yeah, need well, one of those people in our lives. Trust me, I've oh, had the panic attack experience. The listeners know it is yeah. not pretty. <laughs> but I mean, look, we're 
so we're we're living through a virus that's that's killing people, that's destroying our economy. People are afraid right now. I will tell you that a lot of the people that I thought were heroes were also afraid. A lot of people who you think of as just super competent and have skills that you don't have, no, they don't. Hmm. And I will tell you right now, having you know done what I've done, no, no special skills here. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. I love ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust to secure my privacy. Visit our link at expressvpn.com SPP, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com SPP. One last time, head over to expressvpn.com SPP to learn more. And now back to the episode. Wow. I mean, it's so cool (laughs) hearing that from you, not just your background, not just your accolades, but having worked with and known for a long time, Jack Dorsey, again, you know, this guy who like is, is up there in these echelons, just from a pure recognition standpoint, another data point for you to, to use in this explanation of functioning entrepreneurs and normal people. Yeah. Don't let the hero story disqualify you Mm. because that's the, that, that's the, that's the crime of the hero story is that when I hear a hero story, I all of a sudden don't feel like I could be that hero because I'm not that brave or I don't have that much discipline or, you know, whatever it is. Um, Jim, I got to tell you, have you, have you watched Tiger King on Netflix yet? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what a train wreck. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So it's funny. There's a reason I'm bringing this up. Last night I watched this new episode that just came out and they interview all the people from the documentary. And the most common theme is they're like, Hey, look, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a superstar. I'm just a guy in a documentary. And what I find amazing is like, that is the epitome of, of kind of what you're talking about. Like there are people who are fawning over uh, some of the folks in this documentary. And these people are, you want to talk middle America, average Joe, you know, and, and, and they're getting up there saying like, look, I'm just a normal guy. It's really the veil that certain parts of society can, can drop on people these days. It's pretty funny. Yeah. It's, um, celebrity is very weird. 
and I don't I don't have much, so I'm happy to stay on the sidelines there. But well, the people that I know who are celebrities, like I've got a friend who who who's literally a celebrity, mm-hmm. um, and he's also a NBA star, mm-hmm. and he's like almost seven feet tall. And so when we go out in public, like he never has to use a walk button. Like he does not like, you know, the rest of us, you have to push the button and wait for the traffic to stop. No, he just walks wherever the hell he wants. The traffic stops. Like it's going to stop anyway. So he's like, uh, we can go. <laughs> That's pretty funny. As we're, as we're talking, as we're talking about celebrity, one of the things I'm thinking of is, you know, there is a way to keep score. Uh, that's pretty obvious, and that's bank accounts. And and look, it's no secret. Um, you, <laughs> I mean, you've hit that three comma club. You know what I mean? And and I've actually read a couple of articles or things where you're pretty straightforward about money. Um, and I'm interested. Two primary things. One is how do you? How does a billion dollars change a person? Like, what is the? Because it's so hard to comprehend for the average Joe. Uh, how do you think about money? So I'll tell you the story of the day I realized I was rich. Okay. Um, I was driving to my glass studio. There was a radio contest. They were giving away 10 grand. And the radio announcer said, just think how $10,000 will change your life. And I thought about it. I was like, wow, $10,000 won't change my life. Like it, I'm going to drive to the studio and work with the people I love to work with and do the stuff I want to do. And I've got these other companies that have you know, been successful. I, I was like, I was like, 10,000 won't change my life. So I, I did this thought experiment. It's like, how much money would change my life? And the amount that I came up with was this phenomenal amount of money. It was like $60 million. I was wondering, I was, I was not going to let you get away. I was going to say, what is that number? <laughs> yeah, it was 60 million. Wow. And at 60 million, I thought, at 60 million, I'd never have to work again. And I could live off the interest and I could buy myself like a good plane. Cause I, I fly this crappy little $20,000 plane that, <laughs> you know, I'm always, I'm always getting stuck in these like, terrible situations because i don't have i can't climb over clouds or I, it's 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 an old crappy plane but um and i was like i'd get a good plane you know <laughs> <laughs> you know uh you know with like a cup holder and and then i'd be good you know and but then i thought about my life and i was like i'm never gonna make that much money so what i realized at that moment was that i was rich wow that Money wasn't going to change anything. If 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 the if the largest amount of money you can possibly imagine changes only something so trivial as do I fly a little plane or a slightly bigger plane? Like I was like, this is stupid. Like I guess I'm rich, and I didn't have a lot of money, but I was like, oh, I guess I'm a rich guy because money doesn't change anything. Hmm. Okay, and then the sort of ironic fate, you know, hand of fate, put me in this situation where I now have like. Well, I actually have a nice plane now. Right. Know, but, 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 but it didn't change anything. You know what? It didn't change a damn thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I still fly with my friend. Uh, it's a, it's, I now have a, a plane with two shitty engines, you know? <laughs> um, and one of them went out the other day as we were flying. It started making this horrible noise. Oh, no. And, and I was like, well, at least we got one that was good. And I, I was flying a friend in the back. And I was like, oh, we got to land. Like, we got to land now. And you know, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this again. But here's the thing. I'm not saying money doesn't make much difference. I'm saying that, like, at least in my case, I don't have the ego to sort of handle my own bank account. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't matter right that much. and i'm sorry to tell you that if you're like really psyched about making whatever 
amount of money you're making. But like, I don't like, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I, I, I've got a two car garage. Like I, it's just more stuff to take care of. Right. So it, it didn't, I mean, but that's just one guy's opinion. Like I know some guys who are really into having the big bank account and that's cool and they could do it and, and, and they throw better parties. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. see, and that's, I think that's the biggest takeaway. I mean, the thing that I've learned is that, again, going back to your motivations, like I know the the sole reason I want more money is so that I can continue to focus more and more time only on the things that I enjoy, like this podcast or helping people in different ways with their career or get smarter or become more informed so that they can make better decisions. I mean, all those things, that's it. Like I'm in, I mean, I've got this house um, and I love it. And I'm, I, I could live here even if I made $10 million or a million dollars. So, but that's my thing, right? And then you have yeah. others who want to have the party or planes or cars or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with any of them, except when what you're working for is not actually the thing you want. I think that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, I think money and fame are very weak motivators. Um, because when you get enough like the difference between somebody who's super rich and somebody who's middle class is minimal. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's, there's nothing that the super rich, I mean, unless you're like into exclusive weird stuff, but I mean, like I've been to those parties, like I've been to the private island. I've been to all that. It's no better. Oh, come like, on. Don't now don't no, give me that shit. It's better. No, it's just no, not. It's no, it's different. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one of the things that, 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 that makes it less better you're only there with other rich people who tend to be pretty boring and some of them are really self-absorbed. Okay. Now that right? is, that's so, something I would believe. So now, so you're stuck on an Island. Who do you want to be stuck on an Island with? Oh, a bunch of people who like care about their net worth and they're going to talk about money the whole time. No, right. I mean, God, that's, that sounds like, I mean, that sounds like a version of prison and I'm yeah. sorry. I'm not, I don't want like, if you want an Island, go get a, go get an Island. Fine. But don't <laughs> invite me. Okay. I don't <laughs> want to go to your damn Island. You I know? want to be stuck with Jim McKelvey. I really no, I do. Would, I want I to get rather, some drinks with you. <laughs> I would rather hang out with my with my artist buddies who, you know, one of one of the guys sleeps in his car occasionally. You know, he's yeah. a he's a raging alcoholic and he's crazy, <laughs> but 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 he's a good guy and I love him and his name's Bob. But you know, he, he called he, he called me the day my dad died and yeah. said he was sorry to hear my dad die. You know, I you know how many of my, you know, uh uh billionaire friends called? Zero. And Bob the drunk. This Bob guy drunk. I shouldn't say that. No, but, I mean, but, Bob, you know. yeah, but, but I shouldn't call him that. But, but, but I mean, like my buddy, Bob calls right. me up. Hey, right. I heard about your dad. I'm really sorry. You right. know, my friend well, who has a 737. I don't hear. From. Well, and I think we're all learning that right now. I mean, in these times, I think there's a lot of things, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, look, um, I think everybody's learning a lot of really valuable lessons right now but I'm also nervous that we'll forget yeah. them the second that things go back to normal. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious on your, your stance on that. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, some will forget, but others will remember. I mean, I think, you know, some of us are being, look, you, you, the, 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 the rubber band never snaps back all the way. No, no, no material is perfectly elastic. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're getting stretched right now and we're going to bring some stuff back. I mean, I think some of it's going to be really positive. I think, you know, uh, so so I've discovered just how much my son learns in school because he's in school eight hours a day and we're cramming it into three hours now. Oh, right. With, you know, I was like, oh, really? You know, now I guess I kind of knew that. 
But now I'm sitting there going, hey, wait a second. We could actually go and spend a couple months overseas with my wife's family who, you know, she's, she's from, you know, she's from Sweden and, mm -hmm. and, and we could do that and not like trash my kid's education. Yeah. And his exactly. friends all socialize online. I was like, Oh, we could do that. So there'll be some good to happen. Yeah. I, I know we we're running out of time here and there's two questions I have to ask you because they come from our listeners. Um, okay. Alan asked, and these are, you know, they're of course in line with what we've been talking about, but a little different. Number one, Alan asked, do you support a wealth tax? Yes. But here's the problem. Yeah. Uh, not in the way it's been conceived, because there's no way to implement it properly. I support, here's the thing that I love. I like first generation mega wealth. Okay. People who've made it themselves, because those people tend to be more irresponsible with their money. Okay. So, uh, you know, classic count, classic example is Elon Musk, right? He takes his money from X.com, which is PayPal, rolls it into SpaceX, rolls it into Tesla. Like he's putting big bets on stuff that he cares about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, take SpaceX. They try to land a rocket standing up. Well, that's insane. Nobody can land a rocket standing up. All the guys that tell you at NASA that that's stupid, right? And sure enough, the first dozen landings he tries blows up. But then he figures out how to land a rocket standing up. Now, if he was spending grandpa's money, you know, mm -hmm. would he be trying to land a rocket standing up? No, you don't get to land a rocket standing up unless you made it yourself. You make it yourself, you get to be as crazy as possible. So, like, wealth tax on first-generation stuff, not so good, okay? But this idea that you create this sort of dynastic wealth that gets passed on from years, you, you know, years and years and years— I'm against that. And and that's because partially I live in a city that 100 years ago was one of the richest cities in the world. And people made so much money in St. Louis that all of their descendants got conservative. Because let me tell you something about inheriting money. You don't really own it. And what I mean by own it, like I told you earlier that I don't have the ego to spend my money. Mm -hmm. Okay. I at least have the ability to go, I made it. I'll do whatever the hell I want with it. I have that ego. I just don't have yep. a taste for it. I have got no, the, my problem is a lack of taste. Um, but you need to have ownership of the money. If you're going to do important things with it and take big bets, then you have to earn it. So the way I would look at this is I would try to keep sort of general, generational wealth uh, out of uh, favor. But yeah, let somebody make a make a ton one there, and and then they can do whatever they want with it. But hmm. you know, they should they shouldn't burden future generations with it. Like I told my kid, I, I and my kids, I've got two. Look, if you want to be rich, if you choose to be rich, then you should be rich. But you don't get to be rich by me giving you a bunch of money. Really? That's just, of course not, because huh. they don't have the swagger that comes with making it. Yeah. See, like if you make it, then like. Take somebody, take somebody who's made it themselves and put them in a room with somebody who's inherited it. Total different vibe. I can imagine. Oh my God. So if my kid wants to be rich, what that means is he or she, I got one of each, has to make a pile of money themselves. Then they've made it themselves and then they can do whatever the hell they want with it. Okay. Now, if I give them that money, eh, they're going to be a little guilty. They're going to be, hey, dad, is it okay if I uh, try to open a, a space company and land rockets standing up and you know what i'm gonna go no god i'm you know 
you're not rich unless you made it yourself. Then you're really rich. I like that. But you got to have ego. So I don't know how to do that. You got to have that ego. (laughs) It's it's intergenerational wealth transfer is where I'd hit them. You know. How how does it? Right. So like when you pass on, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, don't give giant tax breaks. Like, and I and I would say that there's a tremendous amount of uh, waste of really really expensive uh, intelligent people's time trying to figure out how to game the system. Yeah. So, if I was empowered, the first thing I do to tax wealth is just simplify the entire tax system, massively simplify. Because it turns out the wealthy people have dozens of tricks and lawyers and accountants and shell corporations and uh defective trusts and just crazy crap yeah and not but, available to the rest of us so right not, not available so just like simplify the tax code um and you will end up taxing more wealthy people because the wealthy people are able to game the system and you're not yeah. Why don't, why can't we do that? I mean, you have such a, for, from your position there, you, you have so such a better view of this. I don't understand where there's so much inability to make progress that most people would agree on. What's happened is that we've become very divisive. And part of that is the, uh, the way we elect people. Um, the primary system with one vote tends to produce a polarizing choice of candidates because you you know if you're if you're in the right side of the political spectrum um and you're the right most republican candidate you're going to pick up all the votes of the people who are even more right than you are you know uh-huh. uh, and same same with the democrats if on the left if you're the most left-leaning democrat you'll pick up everybody who's more left to you um which tends to give us candidates who are polar opposites there's there's actually a very good solution to this which is a different type of voting where you um, have, you're able to actually vote for multiple candidates, and that tends to chew, that tends to give more people acceptable alternatives from the middle. So that's that's thing one. Uh, the second thing is uh, social media tends to be an amplification of one's personal biases. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things that I do, I don't, I don't use social media particularly. I mean, like, yeah. Um, I I actually used my first Facebook product two hours ago. <laughs> no way. No, that's not possible. No, I've never been on Facebook, never been on Instagram. I'm, I'm friends with Kevin, like the founder was... of Instagram, and I yeah. never used his product. Um, what? I've never used WhatsApp in my life. Uh, now I. I do have a Facebook page for my book, but that's set up by a marketing company. I mean, like, read it. It's just all canned right. stuff. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've never used a Facebook product. I, I did it for the first time today, and, and it was uh, it was fine. But, I, like, I, I don't follow or do that. I, I, I mean, I use Twitter. I was going to say, now you have to use Twitter, right? You're well, I have to use Twitter because, well, yeah, because Jack started. I want to support Jack, but I don't exactly. use it. Like, I don't tweet uh, anymore because I, you know, I, it just it, it it tends to amplify the wrong thing for me. Sure. Now other people can handle it; they can handle. It. For me, it stresses stresses me out. But I'm weird. Mm-hmm. Like I don't check the stock market. I don't like I know I don't know what Square's selling at today. No idea. Could be up 
We're down. I think it was. Yeah, I Don't looked even, earlier. I don't 50, care. High fifties, maybe 60, 61, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I think yeah. so. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I'll tell you that the political dysfunction is partially because we tend to associate with people like us, and they tell us we're right, and then we go into these things that should be negotiations, feeling so righteous or self-righteous that we don't compromise. And the spirit of compromise has been lost in the halls of government. Um, I'm probably never going to run for office, but if I do, I would probably bring a giant bottle of gin and go drinking with the folks I most disagree with. Mm -hmm. Um, Because those are the people you are going to probably need to work with the most. Exactly. So, well, with that answer, Jim, I hope you do yeah. run because we need a little more of that. Although gin, I can't touch that stuff with a 10 foot pole anymore. You give me some bourbon or some whiskey. We're good, but I can't okay. touch it. Well, so you know, <laughs> I'll have a fully stocked bar, you know, um, <laughs> it, it, but look, I, I don't expect to be an agent of political change too much. You know? oh. hmm. So, okay. This week's episode is brought to you by audible. At Smart People Podcast, we absolutely love Audible. We know everybody doesn't have the free time to sit down and just read all day, but we do know that you have the ability to listen to things throughout your day because, hey, you're listening to this podcast. You could be listening to audiobooks as well. And I know plenty of you are still going strong with your New Year's resolutions, whether it's getting fit, reading more, or becoming a better parent, leader, person, whatever it may be, and Audible can absolutely help you with that. With Audible, each month, members get one credit to pick any title plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. And the app is free, and it can be installed on all your smartphones and tablets. One of the coolest features of Audible, you can listen across devices without losing your spot. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and then use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. Head over to Audible and check it out. So listen up. Visit audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. Yep, it's that easy. Head over to audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. And now back to the episode. Well, um, the other question comes from Mona and she asked, and I thought this was a brilliant question. We kind of touched on it throughout the interview. How did you know what was a yes and what was a no as you were running Square? Like as it grew and evolved, what informed your decision-making process at each one of those decision points, which I know is uh, a lot about what you talk about in the innovation stack, kind of coming from to problem to problem to problem. So how did you know which way to go? So Mona, it's a great question. Um, It's pretty obvious if you have a problem that you understand because you'll see if it's solved or not. So um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Square wanted to create uh, a simple signup. And the typical signup for a credit card account at the time was 42 pages of six point type. So we said, well, let's just make it a license agreement. So cool, problem solved. You just have a click license agreement. The problem with that is that now that we've got a sort of software-like click license agreement, um, none of the banks will work with us because they go, well, that 
does it like you have to have our 42 pages of stuff and it has to be signed. So, so now we can't work with the banks. Okay. So solve one problem mm -hmm. and create, well, in this case, two other problems, because now we can't uh, work with the banks and the solution to not working with the banks is we have to be essentially our own bank. We have to have our own balance sheet and put that in place. Well, so that's now another weird relationship. So we have to like do our own underwriting, which means now we're responsible for fraud as opposed to the bank being responsible for fraud. You know, so, so now we have risk. I'm like, you know, so it is typical. And this is, this is how these innovation stacks tend to evolve. You solve one problem, you create two others. Okay. And the process is simple. You look at the two problems you've started or you've now created and you say, well, has anyone figured this out? Does, is this a solved problem? Because if it's a solved problem, I just want to copy the answer. Mm. Okay. And if it's a solved problem, you solve the problem. Oh, by the way, that that click license agreement, we copied that, oh. right? Oh, how do you do a how do you do an agreement online? Well, we just well, hey, every piece of software has one of those things you never read and you just say click accept, right? Hey, yeah. let's just do that. That's so we copied that solution. You know? Mm. Totally I mean, like, were we innovative? Uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly it had never been done in the banking world before, but it was it was a total copy. Like Jack and I didn't think that up. It was like, Jesus, it's been around for 20 years. So um, so you copy your solutions if you can. Great. If you can't copy, then you have to unfortunately invent. And then you repeat that process until you've solved the original problem that you were trying to solve, until the whole thing works. And it's it's pretty easy to see when it's working, if your problems are clear. Where it's Where it's murky, you probably have not got the problem well-defined because I don't typically find myself in situations where I don't know if it's working or not. Like I'm usually in situations where I know it's not working. Mm. Like I almost always every day work with things that are failing, that are broken, that need an engineer or an inventor's touch because if it's working, I just ignore it and move on to the stuff that isn't working. So, so you're actively, that's, that's what you consider your job, just actively looking for broken stuff. Yeah, that's all I do. You know. Well, Jim, last question here, and it's really yeah. because, especially in the, in the last hour, I did some more reading about the book, and I'm just, I cannot wait to get my hands on it now because I think it will speak to me. Um, and I just wanted to give a teaser kind of to the audience about the brilliance of the book and say this, you just mentioned what the innovation stack essentially is, right? Problem creates more and you either solve all of them so you get to your end goal or you don't, in which case it fails and you we don't really hear about failed innovation stacks. Correct. Um, <laughs> what? What? You did read it yeah, in the yeah, last right? hour or yeah, yeah, part yeah, of it. Yeah. I, I, I dug deep. Um, what do you think, and I know you do outline this in the book, but for the listeners, if you could say the number one thing that caused Square to be successful and even beat out Amazon, which is unheard of, what would it have been? Or what what was it? Well, the thing was the innovation stack. So that's what allowed us to survive Amazon. And I actually go through the math of that, um, which I'll do right now. It's really simple. Like, uh, look, copying one or two things is pretty simple. And if you're a company like Amazon, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to be able to copy two or three things. Square did 14 things that were totally unique. Mm. Even a company like Amazon has trouble doing 14 different things all correctly the first time. So 
by the time they figure out that they need to do 14 different things, like what we weren't telling them all the 14 things we were doing differently. Uh, mm. Some of them are not public facing. Some of them are things you discover by doing other things. You know, you might not discover three of those things until you've done, you know, seven antecedent problems, you know, and, and, and then you get to the real problem, which is this and nobody expected that, you know, so, so that's how this evolves. Um, look, and I'm perfectly happy to give away the, the content of the book. Like I want people oh, yeah. to have, I want have people to have the ideas here. I don't care about a book sale. Um, sure. uh, but like, if you can just get the idea that this process of innovation is not the hero stories that you've been told all your life, not the case where you have to have expertise and not a case where you're going to have a guarantee of success, but then still understand that it's possible and that even though it's scary, like it's not that hard. Like I don't want to overblow what we did at Square. Yeah, it was super successful. Yeah, we survived Amazon. But like if you read the basic stuff that we did, there was nothing that like, oh, that's it? Oh, that's the big deal? Like, I, I literally explained the whole thing for every company that I profile. I put everybody's stack in there. I was like, here, they did this. And and there's a word, there's a phrase that I put in there. So we had to. That's the magic phrase. Mm. So we had to. Um, and, um, you know, M M Mona and all these people, like, don't, like, if it's, if it's, th this stuff is so obvious. Like, it's not this thing you have to be a genius or, you know, read the tea leaves or be really, like, in tune with your chi so that you can, you know, sense the vibe. Like, no, it's obvious, hmm. you know? Like, it's it's clearly not possible to have a payment system where we lose money on every transaction, you know? That's just <laughs> obvious, you know? So when Amazon copies our product and then undercuts our price by 30%, we did not match their price. We didn't enter a pay. Uh, a, 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 a price war with Amazon because, well, they're, they're Amazon. They got billions of dollars. We're square. We've got, you know, like Jack's credit card, you know, <laughs> like there was, there was no way we were going to lose money on every transaction. So we didn't change our price. We just kept going. Like, even though our price was like way higher than theirs in the middle of a war with Amazon, we didn't, we didn't change our price. And, and you say, oh, well, that's obvious. But like a lot of people, would have tried to match Amazon on price, but it's like, wait a second, we can't, we can't be a viable company if we lose money on everything, you know, right. and our margins aren't that good that we could, you know, match them. So we were like, I don't know how they're doing it, but we can't. So we're not, um, these things are obvious. It is, it is, it is a less mysterious process than you have been led to believe. It is more accessible. You are as qualified as you can be to do something new because nobody is qualified to do something new. The only thing that some of us have that's an advantage, and I wanted to share this advantage, is some of us recognize the process when we're going through it, and therefore we're less likely to quit. So mm -hmm. if I told you we're going to take a trip and you show up packed with a you know, nice, pay, nice piece of, you know, that fancy luggage where they print the pretty things on the suitcase and oh yeah got one of those like like you show up with three bags like that and i'm dressed with like two guns stuffed in my belt in <laughs> camo and a bunch of you know chlorine tablets because i don't know what the water is going to be like i was like oh oh i'm sorry i should have told you oh uh, 
we're going into a trip into an unmapped jungle with like a bunch of things that are probably going to kill. Like, like you got to kind of know the trip you're on. So I'm talking more about exploring, uh, being an explorer than being a tourist. So, you know, when you pack for this trip, you don't expect there to be a mint on your pillow uh, in the evening, you know, and you might have to kill and eat something you've never seen before. But it is possible to travel that way. And I would argue in some cases, more fun. Um, But also keep in mind that the greatest travelers who've done this were people who were sort of thrown into the jungle. Um, Mm. They didn't even elect to be on the away party. That really is gold. I mean, it's just this idea, you know, yes, it can be made easier. And I think what you're saying is a lot of it is stick-to-itiveness. A lot of it is what we talked about at the beginning with Jack. It's getting the job done, doing it well. And one of the biggest uh, barriers to doing that is when we feel overwhelmed with our lack of knowing what's coming next, that's when we might quit. But when we read your book, when we understand the case studies, when we see how Square did it and other successful people, we can say this is just part of the process. It's not, um, you know, it's not insurmountable. And that alone might give us what we need to get to that next problem and keep pushing forward and we can have the same story as square and be worth, you know, whatever it is, $50 billion company today. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Like read my book and undo some of your formal education. Like, you know, yeah. like, like just like, yeah. like it, it will undo that part. I like if, 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 if I'm successful, I don't know if this is, this will actually happen, but if I, if I, if I, if I am successful, you will both feel unqualified <laughs> and empowered at the same time like you will sit there and go oh crap like there is no magic formula but there's never a magic formula for anybody and nobody's ever had a magic formula and oh crap i guess that means i gotta go with what i got that is is the empowering part you know that is highly disappointing conclusion which i just give it away like if you could no 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 no. it's just like oh really you know No, I think that is the empowering <laughs> point. I think the biggest the biggest thing that holds people back is the feeling that they, I, me, you know, can't do it. Um, and and the people out there. And, well, yeah, and Jim, but- I just want to say as as we let you go, I mean, this is uh, thank you so much. Like, you don't have to do any of this stuff. And and that's why I was so excited to have you on. It's it's so impressive when people are genuinely like, look, I don't want that creative sitting at home, not getting their work into the world. And so I'm going to take everything I've learned and put it out there. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. But I want a million people working with us. Like that's the whole point. This is a recruitment text, you know, I mean, it should probably have a red cover and a star on it. And we should, you know, be sitting in basement meetings, you know, with a guard at the door. like, here, I'll show you the innovation stack comrade, (laughs) you know, like, no, but like, look, we got to, ton of problems big problem we had a bunch before we shut down the economy now we got a bunch more you know like this is this is terrifying times like we can't leave our talent on the sidelines and we can't let the fact that you know your entire education you've been taught to worship expertise and wait until you're ready to go and have you know fully qualified you know um to 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 to, to begin the journey like uh, uh th- th- that's not how it works uh, when you're doing something new. And so we need a lot of new stuff done and we need a lot of people and, and I'm trying to recruit. So, so, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't have to write the book for some of the reasons most people write books. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I will mm -hmm. give you that. Um, uh, and if you read the book, you will also realize that I didn't write a book that <laughs> reads like theirs do because it's, <laughs> oh God, there is a super dirty joke in the book. That's by awesome. The way. I will just tell you that there is, um, so, um, so my editor, uh, this is a funny story. Uh, he, uh, I, like I wrote a joke and, 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 and it was, it was, it was so bad that I laughed out loud to myself on a plane. I was, I, you know, three rows turned around and started looking at me like I was crazy. And, and, and I, and I, I was like, oh God, I can't print that. And I deleted it. And then I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to take away the pleasure that my editor at, at, at Penguin Random House will have when he catches this and, you know, gets out his darkest shade of red and scratches through this thing. And um, unbeknownst to me, he'd already taken another job. Like he'd already quit as being an editor. So he he was basically checked out. No. Uh, and he didn't catch it. No. So I, no, so I, so I told him about the joke. And he's like, well, you got to tell me where it is. I was like, no, I don't. I was like, if it's like, if you can't catch it, I'm leaving it in. So like neither he nor the editor they assigned after me caught the thing. And then I realized it was one of those jokes that like, you got to have kind of a twisted sense of humor uh, uh. to have. So it's, it's, it's a 20 percenter, like four out of five people will not catch it. And the other ones will be, Oh my God. You know, it's like, it's like ZZ Top's pearl necklace. You're going <laughs> to like, you're, yeah. you're, you're either offended at the song or just oblivious it's like oh you know uh but you know the <laughs> but it's in there and it survived and i mean you know like but, but yeah have some fun like this stuff is scary but we always at least we might as well at least have some fun so we gotta thank have you fun thank you chris way. for making this fun and this was this was this was this was fun talking to you and i'm i i, I appreciate what you're doing no, I, I think, thank you, Jim. Again, everyone, the book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, coming straight from Jim McKelvey. He's been there. He's done it. Obviously, uh, is a joy. Jim, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. All right, man. All good stuff. Bye-bye. All right. Have a good one. Hope you all are doing well. Thank you so much for sticking around. That was our interview with Jim McKelvey. Jim's book, the Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, is available wherever books are sold. All right, let's go through the quick housekeeping stuff. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, you can head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show and leave a rating or review. And if you're feeling extra generous and you want to support us monetarily, head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, you can stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast by heading over to the website and signing up for the newsletter. All right, once again, hope you, your family, your friends are all doing well and you're all staying safe. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.